Hello, and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast. Once again, we're speaking to a leading allocator about their portfolios and their thinking in this time of heightened uncertainty. Uh, Though I must confess this time we have perhaps a slightly confusing lineup with uh, no fewer than three different Daves. We have myself, Dave Baxter. Then we have David Coombs, um, Head of Multi-Asset at Rathbones. And last but not least, we have my fellow asset allocator contributor, David Thorpe. So, David Coombs, thanks for joining us. Um, I I think just to kick off um, from some things you've kind of been writing recently, it sounds like you've been perhaps relatively active on the allocation front and, of course, thinking about your portfolios in light of recent events. Um, So to start, it'd be interesting just to know kind of what you've been doing and kind of what positions you now feel like perhaps you'll be sticking with, um, given everything that's been going on. Yeah, so we we are very much in kind of um, survival mode in in a sense because you know the uncertainty is 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 so dramatic. You know we've got COVID reasserting itself in in China. You've clearly got the the, the invasion in Ukraine. You've now got the US-China diplomatic relations un, under the microscope again in terms of, you know, US threatening sanctions on China if it supports Russia militarily. We're still focused on inflation and how many interest rate rises is going to be, you know, in the US, Europe, etc. So you've got so many macro events at once that it's, you know, navigating that day to day, frankly, at the moment is, is the priority. So... You know, lots of people look at historic parallels. I'm not doing that. I'm just trying to change with the facts on a daily basis. Now, to be able to do that, you have to have a very liquid investment strategy. So our fixed income is pretty much exclusively a basket of sovereign bonds in the major currencies, um, can dollar, Australian dollar, renminbi, US dollar, yen, and a bit of sterling. Um, The equities pretty much high quality, low leverage, large mega cap, very liquid. And the alternatives are genuine hedges like put options on the NASDAQ, interest rate volatility, commodities, you know, true, true alternatives in this kind of environment. Because remember, commodities aren't always negatively correlated, but they are through this crisis. So you, and we've got quite a lot of cash as well. So you want to be as liquid as possible so you can react to the events as they as they change and they're changing pretty materially on a 24-hour rolling basis at the moment. And most of our attention is just, you know, as I say, navigating the current situation. You know, when we've got time, we're then trying to think, and no doubt we'll come back to this, we're trying to think about what the potential medium uh, term implications are on interest rate policy, on, you know, fiscal policy and various sector impacts of this but that that's the work in the background right now it's just you know let's get through the next 24 hours try and make sure the drawdown is as limited as possible if the markets are selling off uh, and because you've got to make sure you don't lose too much during this period so when markets recover you're recovering from a higher base okay david that's uh, that's very interesting david coombs thank you for that um how do you think about risk in a in a climate uh, such as this is it is it a question of just hunkering down with your basket of sovereigns and waiting for it all to be over or or can you uh, can you use volatility as an opportunity in a climate such as this 
Um, I think I'd be very, you know, there's lots of people talking about oh, let's take an opportunity. I, I, this is really not the time to be talk, to doing opportunities. And, and the reason being, one, it doesn't sound particularly nice. But secondly, because of the uncertainties are so high right now, as high as you, you can imagine, given all those macro risks I just talked about, um, you've got to be very careful that you don't keep adding and, and uh, you know, and, and seeing adding today, fall tomorrow, add again next day. So what we do is we have very set targets and levels of the bond market and the equity market where we're willing to, to uh, introduce more capital. Because the trouble is, you know, there's so much noise. Um, sell side are, com- are cutting their target price targets on stocks left, right and center. Everyone's in panic mode. You've got to try and disassociate yourself from that and stick to a discipline um, and make sure you don't keep adding at the same levels in these fro- in these kind of topsy-turvy markets because you, you just find you're entering at the same level all the time. So we have very clear target entry points for committing more capital. So for exa- just to give you an example, the flavor of that, you know, we will probably add to uh, US 10-year uh, treasuries if uh, yields go past 225. You know, we'll probably add to the NASDAQ if it hits below um, 12,800. And then you make sure you you, you wait you, you don't add again to the next target your next target below that or above it depending on which market you're talking about. So what I'm talking about is just discipline. Don't try and time the market. Just have a plan. And and the most important point is you've got to stick to it, even when like today, you know, when Chinese stocks are off ten percent, it feels very very uncomfortable. You do you not feel though like those um, do those targets not become more of a uh, a fluid thing given how you mentioned for example there's a lot of uncertainty about um, the extent of monetary tightening and of course before the Ukrainian crisis people were trying to work out um, you know what a good discount rate was on kind of so-called jam tomorrow stocks and likewise you know how much pain things like government bonds are in for. Do you do you therefore need to be more flexible in terms of what your target is, or do, do you think kind of sticking to the old numbers still has merit? It, it see, of course, it depends where your starting point was. So we started from a point um, in fixed income where we had almost zero duration risk. So when you're starting from zero, you, and I'm talking incremental, so adding a quarter of a percent at each or half percent to each bond level. And, and, and similarly on the equity position. Now, the other point to mention is when you've got put options in the money, which we have at the moment, that takes your notional equity weighting considerably lower. So the put options were up again this morning. So that allows, that, that changes the way you think about your portfolio. So let me just try and make that as simple as possible. We went into this in our medium risk fund, the strategic growth fund, with 66% in equities. We've now got 15% in the money option, sorry, in the money puts covering around 15% of our equity position. So net, we're down at 50. So that means we can increase equities taking the profits from the puts because we're technically underweight equities now. So it it, it very much depends on your starting point. Uh, And we were starting from a very low level of risk. So So we feel comfortable adding quite a long way as markets fall if, if that happens of course we don't know that will happen you know we could get a breakthrough on negotiations this week we could find inflation numbers suddenly fall significantly in in, in sort of late summer um 
So all we're trying to do is, is incrementally increase risk as markets fall. And yeah, if, if something seismic changes that, then of course we'll react to that. But at the moment, there is, you know, um, for example, if we do get a breakthrough in negotiations, well, absolutely that will that will change our short-term view. But until that happens, we need to keep that discipline. That's interesting to hear, David. Thank you. I, I was going to say on your um, interesting to hear your point about cash because I feel like perhaps at various points in the past you've also run kind of uh, perhaps higher levels of cash than some other allocators but you've uh, if I recall correctly you've also perhaps kind of offset that with the level of risk in uh, for example in your equity allocations um has that has that approach to cash does it feel like it's been vindicated or are there kind of certain situations where you would turn to perhaps different buffers or different sources of liquidity yeah so yeah I mean yeah, one doesn't want to sound smug, so vindicate is a strong word. But certainly, the way we approach risk, you know, we 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 had cash because real yields on fixed income were negative, and therefore we felt the returns for the risk employed were were not worth us allocating capital to the to those markets. And you know, when we think about diversifying assets, so we don't mind buying bonds at negative real yields if they're genuinely going to act as a diversifier against what we see as perceived risk. But because the VIX was so low uh, at points last year and even beginning of this year, we were able to be opportunistic in buying put options, which gives you that leverage cover of the portfolio, which means you can hold more cash um, because you've got that leverage of the put options and you don't need to buy bonds as well with that cash. So, it's all about looking at the overall risk of your portfolio and your and your um, your, your correlated risk, if you like. And if, if you can still hold some cash when you see, you know, think back six months ago where equity market valuations were. Think back where negative real yields in fixed income markets and spreads on corporate bonds. You know, there were no obvious asset classes that had a decent looking forward looking sharp ratio or, or risk adjusted returns on a short term period. So cash is just a residual asset class. Ultimately, it's not a market timing. You know, I can't say, wasn't it great? I raised cash and look at me. It wasn't about that. That wasn't a market. T- it's a, it's residual position based on all the other positions you're willing to take. And yes, the last two years, cash has been elevated because the potential returns on offer just didn't for the risk employed didn't warrant that cash being used uh, and yes now you're kind of seeing that play out but it's taken longer than i probably would have imagined david thank you for that is it is it easier i suppose uh, in conversations with clients right now to kind of uh, justify for want of a better word having cash because i know it's often a bugbear with clients you know why am i paying an active AMC for you to hold cash, I could do that. But is it easier to uh, have that conversation in the current climate? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't really, I've never really had a problem with that conversation. I've had cash for quite a few years now and people do raise it as a question. I think it's not often you have an advantage when you're a bit older. <laughs> Most of the time, Tell me about it. being older. Um, but I've obviously managed money through a lot of crises. And, uh, and I think... When you've got experience and a track record, you're able to be really honest with people and, and not say things you think people want to hear. So I've always been pretty clear and said, 
you pay a fee for me to manage money during periods of market stress where hopefully that professional approach and and we talked about you know not getting emotionally involved and and trying to avoid some of the irrational movements in asset prices you know that discipline that we bring which may mean we need to have a big cash position you either trust me and invest with me or you don't you know i don't i shouldn't have to defend a cash position if i think that's the right thing to protect your investment and to and to create opportunities going forwards you know, that's what I'm going to do. I, I, I never apologize for holding cash because it is it is an absolute legitimate position to take. And, you know, as long as you're happy with the returns that I generate for the risk that I take, then, frankly, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty robust about, about that. Um, and, and, of course, you're right. In, in, in a certain extent, people look at me and I go, oh, no, I see why you're holding the cash. My investors, a lot of them have been with me a long time, so they, they know what I'm doing. You know, so I don't really get much pushback. You um you mentioned commodities, and um, before we were recording, you made an interesting point about perhaps some areas like agriculture. You've Perhaps the current crisis has accelerated some, um, some trends. Um, but also on, on the commodities front, one thing I was, I was interested in, and um, I've been reading about a bit lately, is this perpetual idea rearing its head again of um, crowded trades. There are some people, some strategists have expressed concern about, you know, many retail investors piling into things like commodity and gold ETFs. I mean, does does that kind of weigh on your mind when you're focusing on these um, these trades? And is is there anything you can do to kind of yeah. mitigate even just your own worries about it? So, so you raised a couple of number of points there. Which, so if I forget one, please come back to me. So, <laughs> I think the last, I'll, I'll take it in reverse order, if you don't mind. So um, one of the biggest risks you face as investors, who you're, who you're invested alongside, let's use a really s- silly example. You know, if you owned a company 50-50 with Roman Abramovich this morning and he had to sell, your share price is going to collapse, even though the company's probably fine and you've done nothing wrong, right? And, and, and extrapolate that across any investment you ever make. If you're in an illiquid investment and some of your co-investors have to sell really quickly because they need to raise liquidity, the price will plummet. Even though there's probably nothing wrong with the underlying asset, it's just that illiquidity really hurts you. Going back to my earlier point where I have a very liquid strategy at the moment because you, we don't know who's going to be four sellers of assets at the moment because we don't know where all, you know, where all those oligarch assets in the public markets, do we know? We don't know. So it makes that makes me very nervous because it only takes one or two big players in the hedge fund world to be on the wrong side to close out a position to move the gold price 10% a day. That can easily happen. So we need to be absolutely cognizant of, of that. Um, so, you know, but that's something we do all the time. You know, when, when we reduced our exposure to technology last year, for example, again, it wasn't a market timing call. We just saw the rise of the growth value factor to extreme levels we saw the money going to some of those innovation etfs and tech etfs that the amount of retail money and institutional money actually chasing those sectors was was scary and we get very nervous if some of the companies in our portfolio are in the top five or ten of some of those big retail attractive funds some of which are asset management companies in the uk which i won't mention but Again, if they've grown a lot of assets and your stocks are in their top 10 
and you, you, we, we start to think about what happens if that turns over and they're then four sellers of those and we're holding them as well. So it's something we look at all the time and it does, you know, we, we, it's not about being contrarian, but it's, it's just being aware where the hot money is going and making sure you're not overexposed to those hot areas. Go back to the beginning of your question, you know, commodities is kind of in that space at the moment. And so we are very conscious of that. Uh, and we have made some great gains in our commodity ETFs in the last six months, primarily because the inflation scares to start with. And that's why we had them in the portfolio. They were there as a potential mitigation against UK inflation risk. Now we need to think about, you know, do we come out of those positions and made those profits and in, in case it turns over again? Um, but the agricultural point is a really good one, because one of the things that we were thinking about prior to the Ukraine invasion was, you know, the whole COP26, looking from a slightly different perspective of the air miles used to to get food to mark from sort of from where it's produced to market, you know, thousands of miles often, were we going to see a sort of a, a shortening of those air miles? Were we going to see more manufacturing or production of foods closer to market in Europe? What was that going to mean for um, soil management, yield enhancing, the technology that would be required for that? You know, John Deere, for example, hugely advanced in automated uh, vehicles, tractors now, and e-tractors. E so we, we started looking at agricultural equities and commodities two or three months ago as we were thinking about yeah you know, everyone's talking about climate change and renewable energy we started thinking about what about the impact on agriculture and maybe agriculture is the next industry that's going to see huge disruption like retail has with the amazon effect what's happened with the war in ukraine because russia and ukraine are such huge producers of, of wheat and other soft agricultural commodities that has massively accelerated the disruption to the food chain and food secure, supply security. Um, so we bought this agri-business ETF three or four months ago you know, because some of those companies and those industries are still relatively small and, and too illiquid for us to buy individually. So we bought the ETF to get a broader exposure, which is everything from you know nutrients to foods, uh, foodstuffs for, for animals to food production in, in, in the fishing industry, et cetera. So um, we think that's a long-term theme, five or 10 years. It's suddenly in the focus. Thank you, David. And how do you find uh, pricing in, in both the commodity world and in things like uh, ag agriculture at the moment? Are they, I mean, one of the few things that we can be certain about or relatively certain about in the uh, world at the moment is that we're getting higher inflation and it's going to stick around for a little while. Um, how are commodity and agriculture assets reflecting that um, in terms of their valuations? They have. I mean, you've seen the prices of wheat and, and, and other softs. You know, particularly wheat's been the, 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 the really volatile uh, commodity, not, not surprising really. Um, so they have moved up a long way. Obviously, you've seen what's happened with gas and oil. Um, gold's been remarkably weak, actually, in my view. Um, you, you would you would have thought in a conflict like this we're currently seeing, gold would be at two and a half thousand dollars. To be honest, I'm, I think the reason it isn't is because interest rates are still likely to rise in the U.S. and that's usually negative for gold. Um, so, if you look what happened to the nickel price last week because of um, margin calls, yeah. The, that, that goes back to my point about you need to be really careful about entering the commodities market from here. 
because there is there will be I suspect potential distressed um, participants in those markets who are caught out by these sudden moves and um, who may struggle or have the liquidity to meet the margin calls that these 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 significant moves have made. So obviously nickel was suspended last week. I think it's reopening today. Um, so you don't again. I, commodity markets are never for the um, casual investor, to be honest. They're, they're far too dangerous, in my view. David, one of the one of the trades that really came into vogue towards the end of last year, and I guess uh, the start of this year, but maybe is questionable now, is that rotation to value. Uh, it's intuitive to do that when inflation's rising, but it's also supposed to happen when growth expectations are rising. Um, what are your thoughts on that now? Do you think maybe the value trade uh, needs to be paused but could come back later in the year or has value had its uh, very brief moment in the sun? I think it's a very brave individual that would say that at the moment and I'm not going to be that brave. Um, I, I do think that you want to balance actually because of that uncertainty I talked about earlier in in, in the podcast. Um there is such a lack of visibility and clarity. I would say that if you're looking at value, and everyone has a different definition of value, but I, I, I would, you know, where we think about that part of the equity portfolio, we um, favor US financials. So we're looking at the more quality, what we would call quality end of value, who will benefit potentially from rising interest rates, so rising you know, net interest margins, um, and have... Um, probably a higher quality lending book in a, in a in an economy that has slightly more visibility than Europe does right now. So I think it you need to be much more precise. I think the value growth is just too blunt uh, a, a tool right now. I think uh, on the growth side, I think equally I'd be focusing on quality and dependability and visibility. So let me. For example, in, in, in being quite blunt about it, you probably want to own the Microsofts, not that exciting. You probably don't want to own the speculative tech stocks that haven't broken into a profit yet, and then it's still sucking up leverage. So I think my, my recommendation would be you, want, you don't want to be too biased one way or the other, and then within each of those strands, focus on quality, visibility of earnings, pricing power, because we don't know what the outlook for inflation is. You know, you don't want to be in a value stock that's got no pricing power because you're going to lose a lot of money. I mean, that's going to be the value trap of all time. So it's, I, I, I guess my, my, my final word would be quality in the equity portfolio, but also quality in the fixed income portfolio. Hence, you know, I'm focusing mostly on sovereigns right now because, again, we don't know who, who owns the credit markets uh, and what their intentions are. We saw some big selling by fixed income ETFs last week. So four sellers into the market of an Ill illiquid asset class. There could be more of that. So I guess today, 15th of March, I'm saying quality throughout all parts of the portfolio and as maximum liquidity so you can be as flexible as possible. Um, just to shoehorn in one other question. <laughs> You've uh, unfortunately made an interesting point, but um, 
yeah, every, everyone's kind of struggling to find balance at the minute, aren't they? They're kind of um, trying not to, many investors, it seems, are trying to avoid doing any kind of one-way trades. Um, with your portfolios, you know, several years ago now, but you, um, in more recent history, you've kind of had a big focus on uh, direct investments, particularly in those more mainstream asset classes. Yeah. But particularly with equities, does that make it trickier to kind of, strike that broad balance and how do you try to kind of execute that it's much easier actually because you can be much more precise you know i've got 60 roughly 60 equities in the portfolio 50 to 60 depending and you know you 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 can look at the balance sheets the earnings at a company level and 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 just buy those companies that met those criteria i just talked about whereas if i buy funds i have no control of the underlying and you get too much diversification, actually. And so um, it's much harder, I would say, to get that balance because the danger is you buy a value in a growth fund, again, keeping it very simple. You end up with just an expensive index tracker if you're not careful. Um, and everyone's definition of growth and value is different. And so when I'm buying a direct portfolio of, of, of equities, it's my definition of growth and value. And either I'll be right or wrong, right? We'll, we'll see in six months' time. But at least, I'm following my own instincts and I know exactly every minute of every day how that portfolio is behaving. If I had a portfolio of funds, I don't know for 24 hours at best. Um, and I've got no say in, in that growth value um, blend, whereas I can when I'm investing directly. And so, you know, I know that we have almost no companies in the portfolio with a debt to equity ratio over two, which means that they're not starved of cash or capital and can and can and, and can you know survive a, a pretty pretty severe cycle, and that helps me sleep at night. I can communicate that to my investors and hopefully gives them some reassurance as well. So I find it much much easier actually. It's surprising. Yeah, interesting. I suppose we have seen some varied performance from, for example some of the funds you might see as a kind of value plays. Um, but yeah, I, th I think that's a, um, an interesting note on which to, uh, to wind up. Um, we are out of time, I'm afraid, but thank you very much to David or all Davids for joining us today. And thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.